Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and this week I am by myself because Jasmine is helping a friend run for office. I have two awesome guests that we talked to today. The first up is Kate Turner. She is running in eastern Jefferson County, as well as southern Oldham and western Shelby County. So she is really great. She has been running for about a year for this, this seat. She's a really cool candidate who has a story that's really powerful, I think, about you know moving back to her familial home in the midst of the pandemic, really compelling healthcare story. She's a really great candidate. uh, So I was really excited to bring her on to talk to her about her race and then also talk to her about a couple of news items, including Rand Paul going on the air with a couple of ads, uh, several different abortion issues, uh, abortion stories that are going on and and some other stuff as well. So that's what we talked to Kate about. And we also have Rachel Rourke, who I did an interview with. She is a candidate in Southern Jefferson County in South Louisville. That is the district uh, sort of that Mackenzie Cantrell was was in. Mackenzie Cantrell, of course, was drawn into a district with Lisa Wilner, so she uh, is now running for the Court of Appeals, and Rachel Rourke's is running instead in that district. Rachel Rourke's would be, I think, the youngest person ever elected to Kentucky House if she wins her seat. She's a really amazing person. She's worked in local government as a, a, a Metro Council person's aide for several years, so we talked about the intersection of local and state government. What state government or what state legislators can do in terms of improving the infrastructure in their districts and a lot of other ways that she hopes to advocate for South Louisville. So both of these great interviews, I'm really excited to bring both of them to you. Without any delay, let's talk to Kate Turner. Kate Turner is the Democratic candidate in District 33 in East Jefferson County, South Oldham County, and West Shelby County. Uh, She's an environmental and civil engineer by trade, and she has deep roots in Oldham County, and she lives in a multi-generational household uh, with, you know, members of her family in Peewee Valley. This is her first run for public office, and Kate Turner, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. We've been, you know, closely watching your race for a long time. Uh, this is always a race to watch uh, when it comes to the legislative elections. So uh, we're glad to have you as a, a candidate. And uh, yeah, we're, we're interested to get to know you a little better. So... All right, let's start into it. So recently you found yourself uh, the target of a negative ad from the Republican Party that kind of mocked the fact that you moved to Kentucky during the pandemic. But the story of how you ended up in your family home and found yourself running for office is, uh, I think, one that a lot of people are going to find familiar uh, to their own experience, potentially. And then also it's just a really interesting story. So tell us a little bit about how you find yourself in this situation running for office in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my family has incredibly deep roots here in Peewee Valley. So I'm actually currently in the home uh, that my family's been in since the 1940s. Um, And my grandfather, Roy Turner Sr., he was an Episcopal priest uh, and studied at St. James uh, Episcopal Church, which is just down the street from where I am. Um, And the Episcopal Church moved him to Maryland. Um, And so I was born and raised in Maryland. um, And I attended University of Maryland. I became a civil engineer, civil and environmental engineer there. As you mentioned earlier, um, a career that I thought was going to be um, a safe a more steady career path. Let's put it that way. I was advised that this was going to be a a safe career path. I would always be employed with an engineering degree. Um, Well, during a pandemic, uh, no one wants to buy makeup in person. (laughs) Um, And I was um, at the time a a construction manager for a makeup brand. Um, And so uh, they did a great job of holding me on for as long as they could, but I got laid off. 
and I decided to come and be with my family in Kentucky. So that's where I've been since. And the reason why I decided to run is because um, I've had an intimate relationship with healthcare my entire life, as have most people. And I actually had an accident when I was in my early 20s. Um, and at the time, I had been laid off as uh, due to uh, the recession caused by the 2008 financial crisis. Um, so I have a lot of experience um, with dealing with uh, getting healthcare during a crisis. Luckily enough, I was still on my parents' health insurance because of the Affordable Care Act that had just passed. But I probably wouldn't have bought insurance as a inexperienced, healthy 23-year-old. And I happened to have an accident, and I cut my hand, um, and it was about $16,000 worth of surgery and physical therapy that would have uh, been added to my table at that time. So I've always been conscious of access to healthcare as an issue, um, you know, that even young, healthy people need to have access to it and for it to be tied to our jobs, particularly during a pandemic, uh, doesn't make very much sense. Um, so that was what catalyzed me to run um, because cost of living, cost of healthcare, cost of childcare, the cost of raising a family in Kentucky is out of reach for a lot of people. And I want to go to Frankfurt and uh, make this state um, a place that people want to raise their families in and stay in um, and fight for my family that has been here. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I said, uh, a lot of shades of people, things people, a lot of people have had to do um, throughout their lives, especially in the past few years. Um, so many people have experienced going through that with their health insurance, going through that with their jobs, trying to find ways to to make it work. And yeah, um, having people that have experienced that would be a very good thing to have in the legislature. I will say yeah. uh, when uh, they implemented the fact that 26 year olds could stay on their parents' health insurance was when I turned 26. So no, <laughs> no good for me. I'm glad that you benefited from it. So that's, that's very I did. good. Yeah. I um, did. Yeah. So, so um, you, you make an excellent point, though, too, about someone who's experienced um, figuring out how to collect unemployment. It was the only way that I could uh, pay for my health insurance at the time without breaking into my retirement account. Um, and I don't know how many legislators have had to file for unemployment and actually deal with that system or file or figure out how to either use COBRA or purchase um, health care off of the marketplace. But it's not easy. And if you're not um, knowledgeable and not an advocate for yourself or you don't have the uh, the time or the energy to be able to do it, uh, you absolutely fall victim to the system and probably will not receive the full benefits that you deserve. Yeah. Uh, so I absolutely plan on taking that experience with me to Frankfurt. Absolutely. Um, there's no way you couldn't, right? That's just a core, a core part of the person that you are. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Let's talk a little bit about your district, which, um, you know, is the 33rd and the 33rd district has been a major target for Democrats for a very long time um, with no success so far. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, the, the district has changed a little bit in the redistricting process. It's it's picked up um, a little bit more of Southern Oldham County and even, you know, a few precincts in Shelby County. Um, it, but, yeah, I'm interested to hear from you uh, as somebody who's, you know, seen the history, knows the history. Why do you think it is that you in 20 2022 will be the person who causes the 33rd to flip parties? I think that there are a lot of reasons. Um, 
that are kind of all coming together at once. Um, I think a really powerful one is that uh, people in Kentucky and in the 33rd are uh, really tired of government not working for them. And um, a young person who has been through um, what I've been through, who's experienced what I have, I think that that sends a powerful message of, uh, you know, people want this area um, to be a safe and comfortable place for them to be able to raise their families. And um, I uh, financially not able to own a home or start a family because of the situation that uh, you know, so many of us have been put through and so many of us have put off having a family because of that. Um, making sure that if I have a child that they'll be able to go to fantastic schools and have accessible child care and know that they'll have access to great health care. Um, you know, that's something that concerns me. That's something that concerns people in this area, um, people in the district. And I think that they're looking for someone to step up and represent them in that way. And I believe that people in this district are tired of having someone there who will say one thing to garner votes in Jefferson County and do another in Frankfurt. Jason Nemes has courted the endorsements of organizations that paint him as a moderate um, for years. Um, He's courted the Fairness Endorsement, and he's courted the Jefferson County Teachers Association Endorsement, and has gone and voted directly against the interests of those groups. Um, And so, you know, if you can't trust your legislator uh, to uh, even fight for the interests of the groups that have endorsed him so blatantly, um, it's very clear that he's not there to serve the interests of people in his district. Um, So I I think with that overall trend, in addition to um, Amendment 2 being on the ballot um, and uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the current abortion ban that is in, in effect in the state, I believe that this is an opportunity uh, with some momentum to really flip this seat. I've been very personal uh, and vulnerable and open about my experience with access to birth control as well as access to IVF in vitro fertilization. And, um, you know, I believe uh, that those um, that accessing birth control and accessing IVF uh, will be difficult in the state. Uh, in addition to accessing abortion, obviously. And I want to fight to make sure that reproductive care, the entire spectrum of it is available for people, not only in the district, but in Kentucky. And I believe that that is where people in this district stand. Those are very good and compelling reasons to think uh, this might very well be the year. And and I mean, I totally I mean, as somebody who has benefited from both birth control and IVF at different points in my life, I, uh, I can say that, you know, I mean, we're in an IVF office like every couple of weeks at this point right now. And I will say that like people and Republicans who've taken a lot of these votes think, oh, you know, that's just overblowing it or like this isn't really an issue. It's really a thing that those doctor's offices are concerned about. The way that we have written this legislation and enacted this legislation really does put those places potentially at a lot of threat. To, yeah. to, to act like that's not true is just um, living not in the reality that we actually exist within. So I'm glad Absolutely. I'm glad to hear that we potentially have an, an advocate for that type of care um, heading to Frankfurt. So uh, sorry, let me just add really quickly. <laughs> After I came out with my IVF story, I will say that um, Jason Nemus did put out a letter to his constituents in his newsletter saying that he would pursue a carve out to legalize IVF or to protect IVF. Um, with colleagues of his next session. And what I want to emphasize is that is 
um, while that may or may not happen, it's completely ineffective because any doctor who practices IVF must also be willing to practice something called selective reduction. And that is an abortion, no matter what. And I want to be clear here that these bans you can have a million carve-outs for whatever kind of care you deem as worthy, but there's always going to be an exception to the rule that someone will need something. And that's why it's so critical that these decisions are made by the person who's experiencing them and whomever they want to be involved in the decision and why it makes no sense for government to be there. Yeah. And uh, Nemus has also threatened to pull state funding from the University of Louisville because they teach OBGYNs how to perform abortions there. And I don't know who's going to be performing these magical IVF procedures that he thinks are still going to happen if we don't have a pipeline of OBGYNs that are either able to get their accreditation in the state of Kentucky, practice in the state of Kentucky, um, or why they would risk their license um, with the laws that we have on the books. So yeah. I no, you're you're exactly right. And and as somebody who's watched this happen, the way that this typically goes with uh, people who purport to be moderate Republicans is that they say they floated it to their caucus and they weren't interested. And I'm really sorry. I did the best I could. And that's typically the way it goes if um, the Republicans continue to perpetuate their majority. Um, all right. Let's keep talking about the 33rd. So the 33rd for many years has been split between Louisville and Oldham counties, like Jefferson and Oldham counties. But it's been one of those districts that Louisville has definitely had. Uh, the majority of candidates. Most of the candidates uh, on both sides of the aisle have been in Louisville. You're kind of unique in that you are from Oldham County. Your roots are in Peewee Valley. So I'm interested to hear, um, how are you going to take your connection to Oldham County to Frankfurt, and how would you advocate for the folks in your hometown, uh, in in the town that your your family is rooted in, uh, when you you make the trip uh, just uh, a little bit to the east there? Yeah, I love this question. Um, well, my family here has, uh, is, has been rooted in public service in Peewee Valley for generations. And I don't think that I'd be doing what I am if my family had not been doing what they've been doing for generations and what my grandfather did. Um, so the house that I'm currently living in, um, was at one point, uh, owned by my great aunt and uncle, um, Norman and Virginia Turner. Norman was the Peewee Valley fire chief for about 35 years. And Virginia ran a daycare center out of this home for about 30 years as well. So there are dozens of children that grew up in Peewee Valley that went to this daycare center. Um, and and her work allowed for families to prosper um, because they had access to affordable childcare. So there are dozens of families whose parents got to go to work and build economic stability for themselves because of the work that my Aunt Virginia did. Um, my Uncle Buford, uh, Buford Renniker, was the sheriff on and off of Peewee Valley for uh, decades with his brother as well. They traded the seat um, every other term. And he was the kind of sheriff who would make sure that uh, people in the town who uh, were out of wood for their stove had it. Um, if they uh, got too drunk, made sure that they spent the, the night in a safe place and got him home in the morning. Um and the stories of taking care of people in this in this town um, because they're your neighbor um, 
and because that's the right thing to do. Um, I hear when I'm knocking doors and I tell people that I'm Norman and Virginia's niece, they they know who that is and they recognize that. And I've had Republicans tell me, um, you know, that it's important to them uh, because they knew Norman and Virginia that they're going to vote for me. And it's it's based on that trust and those relationships. And um, my grandfather, who I was incredibly close with until he passed away from Alzheimer's um, in 2012, um, he was an Episcopal priest. And he, like I had mentioned earlier, he studied at St. James here in Peewee Valley. Um, his mentor was a, a, a man named Father Board. And um, my grandfather was a civil rights activist long before it was popular or safe to be one. Um, He even um, manned the medic tents during the 68 riots um, at the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. And um, his I have photos of him with with Rosa Parks um, and he he attended a prayer breakfast with uh, Martin Luther King just a few days before he was assassinated. And um, it, he fought very hard um, for the rights of people to be treated um, equally and access um, the services that they were um, that they were entitled to as um as human beings. And it was important to him um, from a very young age, um, growing up as poor as he did here in Peewee Valley, um, he still saw humanity in everyone. And it's not a coincidence that his um, him being in my life and such an important figure in my life, um, that that um, motivated me to do the work that I'm doing. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. No. So, you know, Oldham County experienced like a really significant population surge, like really over the past half century. And I think that's what most people know about Oldham County. It's like who lives there now. But one of the things I think about places like Oldham County, and there's a lot of places like them in northern Kentucky or like Jessamine County, uh, close to close to Lexington. There's a lot of places like this that have a deep history that goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And so I do think it's really important and valuable to have people that represent those communities that had to cope with like this population explosion and a lot of people moving there. I mean, the the histories of these places almost kind of get erased. And it's really interesting and cool to have somebody uh, from one of those families that goes such far, such a far back, far ways back um, in in that community uh, running for office. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing those stories with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about issues. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that we do hear about at the doors quite a bit in the 33rd is public safety. So public safety is an issue. Uh, you know, I think that's all over Louisville and, and really all over the state uh, right now. Uh, it's It's very hotly contested in the mayor's race, especially. Um, but I'm really interested in, in a, about what you think the state government's role should be in providing like equitable solutions to the public safety issues that we're facing in Louisville and, and really the surrounding area, which is also where you're running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is an incredibly important issue to me uh, because I strongly believe that everyone deserves to feel safe in their homes and their communities. And um, I think that our approach to uh, crime, particularly as it um, as an issue today, as so much of it is driven by our opioid crisis and addiction crisis, 
is it needs to be a two-pronged approach. And that is responding to crime as it currently happens right now, but also investing in policies that prevent crime. Um, because um, it's incredibly important that we have fully funded police departments who can respond to emergencies and crime as they happen. Um, but the best police department with the best training and the best equipment in the entire world still can only respond to crime as it occurs and can't prevent it before it starts. And the pervasive crisis of addiction um, is tied to homelessness and mental health. And it is, um, we are putting um, our blinders on and burying our heads in the sand if we don't recognize that um, police have been forced to uh, deal with the tail end of so many um, societal issues that we've defunded resources for. And um, it's incredibly important that we not only recognize that, um, but that we invest in solutions that we know um, that we know work. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here at all. We know that there are solutions that absolutely work. Um, the city of Houston um, invested in uh, decreasing their homelessness population, and they did. Um, they provided housing for solutions, and they decreased their homeless population by a significant portion. Um, so we don't need to come up with some plan that um, is impossible. It's just a matter of choosing to invest in uh, programs that we know work. Um, and uh, the other piece of this is, of course, um, unfortunately, but it's something that needs to be talked about in Kentucky, is uh, domestic violence and suicide. And uh, we have some of the highest rates of domestic violence and suicide in the country. And we know that domestic violence and suicide are um, made much worse um, and much more uh, much more likely to be fatal if there are um, illegal and um, unsafe guns around. Um, and so we need to uh, seriously talk about uh, closing background check loopholes as well as red flag laws. And um, I think folks get really um, uh, overwhelmed by the idea of talking about gun safety, particularly in a red state. Um, but I think what uh, a lot of people don't realize is that these policies are incredibly popular um, and because responsible gun owners are already doing these things. They're not um, surprising or shocking things that um, for responsible gun owners. And, uh, you know, there are suicide is um, suicide is the number one cause of death with a gun. Um, in the state. It's it's so pervasive. Um, the mental health crisis is, is a serious issue. And to be able to say, you know, I, I am afraid for my loved one and to have a resource to be able to reach out to when you're in that crisis situation to prevent something horrific before it happens. Um, I think that we need to have those resources available for people. Yeah. Um, you know, th these issues are so dicey, right? Um, and there's so many di different sides to each of them. And, you know, it's almost hard to talk about them without making everybody mad at you. So I really, yeah. uh, I appreciate people who speak, you know, forthrightly and, and strongly about what they believe on these issues, because they're problems that need uh, solutions. And the more that we're afraid to talk about them, the less likely we are to actually come up with Absolutely. solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's a very nuanced issue, but I, I just don't think that we can ignore, you know, a crisis where the number one cause of death for children in our country is is gun deaths. Yeah. Um, and that's accidental and domestic violence. And that's more than car accidents. And that's more than cancer in children. Yeah. And, um, you know, we we deserve representatives who are unafraid to 
tackle difficult issues. Mm-hmm. Speaking yeah. of difficult issues, uh, you know, you, you've you've run this progressive campaign. We've talked a little bit about abortion rights and, um, you know, I, I, how did you you frame it like reproductive care, full spectrum reproductive care, which I think is a great way to put that. Um, you've talked about your your passion for health care and how that got you involved in politics in the first place. So I am interested. Uh, I mean, are there any other uh, issues or, or movements or specific bills that are already making their way in previous versions of the legislature um, that you're interested in, in adding your voice to uh, as you make your way to Frankfurt? That would be like top on your list? So anything that we can do to make access to healthcare more, uh, anything that we can do to expand access and make it easier to go to the doctor. Um, so even it, it's just very simple that if the more difficult we make going to see the doctor, every single copay, every single annoyance um, with having to find a new one, with making sure that your insurance actually meets it, um, it, 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 it it encourages people to not go to the doctor. It, it makes it so that they put off and defer their care when they have something minor. And I, I always use the example of teeth because um, dental is always kept as a separate insured um, item, even though teeth are part of your body. It doesn't make any sense to me that dental care is not included under medical care. Um, but if you if your teeth are not well taken care of and you, and you have a, an infection and you're not dealing with it and you're not dealing with it, it turns out that if you continue to swallow all of the infectious bacteria that is in your mouth over time, it can cause horrific heart disease and lung disease just by you swallowing it regularly, right? And how many people do we know put off going to the dentist because it's a pain to go to, right? And so every time that we make it more difficult for someone to go, um, we make it more likely that they're going to put off their care again and again, and particularly in areas where there aren't doctors who um, are accessible, who are not, um, who do not offer Medicaid or Medicare um, services. So anything that we can do to expand those groups, to expand, um, you know, let's say pediatric dental coverage to make sure that um, children ha- grow up with a sense of care um of their teeth, right? And that we instill that in them in a young at a young age because they have access to care because all of a sudden pedi- their 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 uh their dental needs are covered. Um so I'm really interested in in bills that really move the needle and a great example of one is the expansion of um Medicaid coverage for pregnant women for a year after their birth. Um, and that just passed last session. Um, so that's the type of, of work that I'm very interested in, in advocating for. Yeah, healthcare is a really dicey and really complicated mm-hmm. issue with a lot of in- intricacies that the government is very tied up in and having more policymakers and people that actually vote on those bills that know the intricacies and the ins and outs of how it works is always good. So we do have about a month before the election. If people are interested in helping you out on the campaign, how can they do that? Um, so you can check out our website, uh, kateforkentucky.com, all spelled out. Um, so it's the the word for F-O-R, not the number. And Kentucky is also spelled out. It's not the abbreviation. So right. kateforkentucky.com. There are two buttons on the website. Um, one is to sign up to stay in touch. And there's another to sign up for a yard sign. Uh, either of those is helpful for us. Um, you can also donate, which is incredibly helpful to us. We um, have a small gap that we need to close. Um, 
so I, as I like to say, it's about doors and dollars at this point. So we need people to knock on doors and we need dollars to close our gap so that we can purchase those signs and those mail pieces and those digital ads that are going to take us over the line at the end of the um, at the end of the election. All right. Awesome. Well, that was the interview, but you uh, already agreed. So I'm going to hold you to it to stick around and talk a little bit about the news. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of these things that, that uh, have happened in Kentucky in the past week. So uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about is that Rand Paul, the U.S. senator from Kentucky, is on the air with two different ads, um, one in which he says that Charles Booker, his Democratic opponent and, and, and Booker's allies, support violence. Uh, and another featuring uh, the University of Kentucky swimmer Riley Gaines, which was very anti-trans and purports, uh, purports to support women in sports. And the Rand Paul campaign has just been really deeply nihilistic this time. It was the first two times. Also, this one has just gotten really, really bad. Uh, this is all just kind of part of this trend. So, I, you know, as somebody who's faced a lot of Republican attacks uh, over the past year, um, are these issues that you think um, resonate with Republican voters? Like, why do you think that Rand Paul is uh, hitting these two things so hard. Yeah, so I think um, the the violence issue is definitely one uh, that's that's been uh, a successful dog whistle for uh, Republicans for a really long time. Um, anytime you hear um, crime and violence and Chicago all tied together, uh, you know it's it's very clear what they're referring to and who they're talking about. Uh, and unfortunately, I do believe that it is effective because as we discussed earlier, crime is on people's minds. Um, I think particularly, you know, after coming out of this pandemic, a lot of us know that not all of us are okay. We've gone through a really hard time all together and we haven't dealt with it well as a society um, and the resources that we've needed haven't been there. And I think that we need to acknowledge that and admit that um, and and not turn our heads away from it. Um, so unfortunately, I, I do think that the, the violent attack, while not based in any sort of reality, uh, because I've know um, and respect Charles very, very much. Um, and I believe that his campaign will do much more to address the violence that's actually happening in Kentucky than Rand Paul ever has, because Rand Paul doesn't do very much of anything. Um, but that being said, I, I think it is unfortunately an effective um an effective tactic, which is why Republicans keep going back to it. Um, and in terms of uh, the anti-trans uh, attacks, you know, I think that that's an issue that 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 gins up the Republican base, but doesn't do very much for just average your average Kentuckian or person, because that's not an issue that impacts very many of us. Um, it's it, there are so few instances where this is actually occurring, and these sporting associations where this is happening already have policies and procedures to address it. It's not an issue that government needs to be involved in. Um, and it's so clear that it is just um, a way to other uh, another group and to bully trans children and uh, trans athletes. Um, and, uh, you know, if the Republicans can continue to uh, create um, a target to point all of their negative ads at, um, then they're going to continue doing that because it's a tactic that works for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, the, the Rand Paul violence ad was always kind of wild to me. I mean, as a, he is a person that has faced, you know, multiple violent actions in his past. So, I mean, that's kind of fair, I think, but like when he named the, the Democrats who are like, 
pr- pr- performing violence against him. Most of them were just like mean tweets. I think it was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was kind of the thing uh, that was kind of funny to me was that at the end of the day, it all came down to like these Democrats were mean to me. Um, right. Yeah. Not to mention that, you know, the 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 insurrection happened where police officers yeah. <laughs> died, capital police officers died. And, um, you know, Rand Paul has minimized um, the violence that occurred during the insurrection on January 6th. Absolutely. Um, and, and also, um, you know, it's violence of a different kind, but downplayed the, the COVID crisis as it was happening and invested in companies uh, during that time that that he benefited from monetarily while people died. Um, so it's, it's quite rich for him to be, you know, playing... Uh, using this messaging as though he's someone who really cares about uh, violence in people's lives um, because it's clear that he doesn't. Yeah. And, 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 you know, women's sports in Kentucky are facing like a crazy moment right now. You know, our women's soccer team is facing like this crazy Absolutely. situation with, you know, former, uh, former coaches and, and like a cover up and uh, really could probably use some support from elected officials, but instead yeah. uh, it's support in, and women's sports comes down to being anti-trans. So that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if, if Rand Paul could name a single WNBA team, probably. Right. So that's uh, that is what it is. Um, I would love. Yeah, you make an excellent point. I I would love for any any official who's really concerned about women's sports and says that they are to argue uh, to tell me anything about Title IX and funding for women's sports, uh, abuse in women's sports, protecting women uh, female athletes from abuse and harassment, and uh, and equal pay for professional uh, yeah. female athletes as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on a little bit. Uh, to talk about uh, abortion. Um, Planned Parenthood said this week that they would be utilizing a massive 37 foot RV that would serve as a mobile clinic along the Illinois border to, provo- to provide abortion care to citizens of states who have or will soon lose access to abortion care. You know, there are efforts to, to preserve abortion rights here in Kentucky. Um, but even if we defeat Amendment 2, you know, that doesn't make abortion legal. Unfortunately, there are lots of states that we still have to go through uh, in order to make abortion legal in Kentucky. So this could p- potentially be like a solution to the problem. Uh, you know, as these state laws evolve and we have this patchwork of abortion laws throughout this the country, um, stuff like this is going to happen more and more. And, and I, I guess I'm, I'm glad that people are being creative and finding ways to uh, make sure that people's health care needs are met. But it is kind of crazy that this is what it's coming to, that Planned Parenthood has to buy an RV and drive it up and down the Mississippi River. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah. Um, no, uh, abortion advocates, uh, access to abortion advocates have for decades, uh, I think, been preparing for this moment um, and knew that this was coming. And uh, so the creative ways that they can get around making sure that, that people have access. Um, and because you know, the, the, the part of the hardest part of getting an abortion is actually finding someone who can treat you for one. Um, and so being able to actually get there um, can be a, a huge hurdle and a barrier and cost. Uh, the cost of accessing abortion in this country has gone up significantly since uh, Roe was overturned uh, because of a lack of access and a lack of, lack of doctors who are, who are legally able to perform the procedure where they practice. So, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, another side of that, too, is like all abortion doctors also function as OBGYN. So, you know, that's a, a specialty that's in, de- you know, great demand all over the place. And if you lose your 
doctors who perform abortion stuff, states that will allow them to do that, you know, you're also losing people who can deliver babies and um, provide gynecological care. So that's very bad as well. Um, Um, Something that I always bring up when this comes up, sorry, sorry, Robert, uh, is just that, that 73 out of 120 counties in Kentucky do not have OBGYNs currently. And I think it's really important to drive that home. I think people who are who are involved in these issues and are well-versed in politics are still shocked by that number when I tell that to them. Uh, we already do not have enough OBs in this state. And so the idea that um, we would make it more difficult for them to practice at all is um, it, it's, it's shooting ourselves in the foot uh, when it comes to maternal care um, and care for women and families uh, in the future in the state. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of the issue of abortion, um, it's become a major issue in the Louisville mayor's race. So Craig Greenberg's first attack ad of the year focused on the support that Bill Deeriff, who's a Republican running in the races, uh, campaign and that he's received from anti-abortion sources. Uh, Bill Deeriff did respond, and he said that the city of Louisville doesn't have any purview over abortion rights. Um, but, you know, Greenberg has said that he will uh, instruct LMPD not to stop women from trying to receive abortions. And that's something that, you know, the mayor certainly has the authority to do. There is a lot of intersection and has been. Even even during Roe, we had the buffer zone uh, conversation, and, and we eventually got a buffer zone around EMW, um, the abortion clinic here in Louisville. Um, abortion politics have always existed on the city level and with the overturn of Roe, it's just going to be more so. So it seems a little tone deaf of Bill Deeriff to just kind of say that that's not the case. But I guess what is he supposed to do if his party is so tied up in anti-abortion rhetoric that might pay off in some places? I don't think it's going to pay off in, in Louisville. So just from a political standpoint, what do you think about this? I mean, do you think um, that that Bill Deeriff's defense makes sense or will it work for him politically? And, and what do you think about Craig Greenberg opening the campaign um, by talking? Talking about this issue? Well, I think that this is, you, <laughs> I would love to talk about issues other than abortion, but we're being put in a situation where we're being forced to talk about it. Uh, one in four women by the age of 45 in the United States will have an abortion and 60% of the women who receive abortions are already mothers. Um, we don't talk about it openly because we don't talk about menstruation or pregnancy or recovery or C-sections publicly um, until they're a part of our lives. Um, but if you talk to women, you know that these are things that are going on. So even though it wasn't at the forefront of everyone's mind, you know, March of 2022, um, it all of a sudden became at the forefront of at least 51% of the country when Roe was overturned. And You know, I think that it's a very reasonable attack to say that, you know, Greenberg has come out and said that he's not going to direct the LMPD to um, to to try and stop women from pursuing abortions. We're we're talking about criminalizing women and doctors who are who are seeking and performing abortions. That is what the legislature has proposed. These are laws that are on the books. And, um, you know, if you have a police force who will not enforce those laws or, you know, district attorneys as well. Um, You know, these are all important positions that officials at every level need to make clear what their stance is on these issues, um, because we're talking about uh, about criminalizing folks who seek abortions. Um, So I think it's something that Dariff absolutely needs to respond to. And for him to say that it's just not a city issue, um, 
is is incredibly uh, tone deaf. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and you know your your point is very well taken about uh, the district or the county attorneys and the Commonwealth attorneys uh, about these issues. Of course, those are separate from the mayor's race, but we should also be being paying very close attention to those as well. All right, moving on. Uh, Andy Bashir and his administration have recouped the fifteen million dollars that the Bevan administration and the GOP legislature gave to the failed aluminum company Brady Industries. Um, this brings this saga, which we have been talking about on my old Kentucky podcast for I think like close to five years. Um, so uh, it's been a long time, um, and, and it's clearly been a very difficult road to get this money back. But the the uh, Bashir administration was able to do that. I think that that's really impressive. Um, although I am a little sad. Uh, first of all, for the people of Ashland that desperately desperately needed uh, something like this to go in with the closure of the largest plant in that entire region, um, but also just because it was a funny story and I like talking about it. So um, <laughs> I don't know if you followed this that closely, but uh, do, you, yeah. do you have anything that you, you want to say about this? Um, only that I think um, I, I don't know how much work the Bashir administration could possibly do to drive economic growth here in the state um, and still not continue to get as much credit as they deserve for it. Um, but I think let's add this to the list because uh, because it is incredibly impressive what they were able to do. And um, congrats to them and their team for being able to pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we'll end with uh, one that's kind of depressing, uh, but something another thing that we've been following for quite a while, and that was that is that there was a 12th death at the Louisville jail on Monday. And that's the 12th death since November 2021, about a year. Um, while the jail had a several month period during 2022, where there were no deaths after a si- several significant changes that they made to leadership and to policy, uh, there have now been three or four in the past few months. So whatever solutions that were put in place don't seem to have stuck, don't seem to have really solved the core of this issue. There are plans beginning to form uh, for Louisville to build a new jail, uh, which, you know, that is a potential solution. But some advocates believe that a better solution would be more support for people outside of a jail setting. Another one of these really, really dicey issues. Um, But people are dying and um, Louisville Metro or LMDC really needs to do something about that. They have, but it hasn't worked. So they got to try something else. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, It is really sad and it's really hard. Um, so hopefully they are able to find something out, um, find something that will, you know, be a solution in a more permanent way, uh, soon. Yeah, it's, um, no, it's horrific. Um, I think we tend to lose sight of people's humanity when we're talking about crime and criminal justice, because, you know, it's very easy, easy to label someone or a group of people as a bad, uh, bad person. Right. But there are plenty of people who are in jail and are in our criminal justice system who are nonviolent offenders um, and who are likely involved in a life of crime because of an addiction crisis. And, um, you know, addiction is a disease and it is, um, it's treated very differently if you are wealthy. Uh, You don't end up committing crimes if you have enough money to feed your habit. It's just that simple. And, um, you know, I think that we need to, as a society, as a community, as a, as a commonwealth, think hard about what our criminal justice system is meant to do. Is it are are we are we trying to punish human beings? You know, is that is that our goal? And I think the answer to that should be no. I think that human beings are human beings, no matter. Um, no matter what, I, I don't think that we should be able to dictate, the state should be able to dictate whether or not someone's humanity is worth um, respect, 
And, uh, you know, I think that we do need to have measures, punitive measures, particularly for people who um, commit violent crimes. Um, and I do think that we absolutely need to um, have strong policy to prevent uh, violent crime offenders um, from committing again. Um, but people dying in jail, uh, 12 dying um, since November of 2021. I mean, that is horrific and a failure of the state. Um, and we need to uh, admit that. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, th- that's really well put. Uh, and, and I mean, I think it also, uh, speaking of people who've been convicted of their crimes, who've lost their humanity, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely the case, something we need to deal with. But I mean, if we're going to have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, like the jail is where you hold people while they're undergoing trial. And if you if you uh, can't guarantee that you're going to be able to keep these people alive while they're undergoing a trial, that's that's an even greater failure, I think. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, Jasmine uh, often says that the presumption of innocence is mostly just a fantasy these days. Uh, I think she's, uh, you know, she she's she she's obviously faces this on a much more direct level than me but i mean with with stuff like this being the case it's hard to say that that's anything um uh, other than absolutely that. absolutely yeah. innocence is saved for the wealthy as well the ones who can afford to not yeah. wait in prison absolutely or wait in jail yes um, uh the bail system uh, another big part of this as well another a thing that hangs over this entire situation All right. Well, Kate Turner, thank you very much for both sharing your story about how you're running for office and also talking to us about the news. Thank you very much for being with us. We we really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was uh, long overdue. All right. Now let's get to our interview with Rachel Rourke's. Rachel Rourke's is the Democratic candidate in House District 38 in southern Jefferson County. Her district centers around Iroquois Park, but stretches almost to the edge of Valley Station in southeast Jefferson County. Ms. Rourke's previously worked for Metro Councilwoman Nicole George and graduated from the University of Louisville through the Metropolitan College Partnership, which required her to work third shift at UPS. This is her first run for public office. Rachel Rourke's, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I've heard... So many people that love this podcast, and I am one of them too. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, we're thrilled to have you. I mean, you're a very your your whole story. I mean, people get to know you, but we're really excited about you as a candidate. So we're really looking forward to talking to you. So, all right, the 38th district, which is your district down there in Louisville, found itself without a candidate because Mackenzie Cantrell and Lisa Wilner were drawn into the same district, and now you know Representative Cantrell is running for the Court of Appeals. Um, and yeah, we needed a candidate in 38. And, and you stepped up to run. So I guess, you know, tell us a little bit about how uh, that came to be, how you decided to run for it. Did you get asked or did you, was this something you've been dreaming about for a long time? How did all of that happen? Wow. Yes. I mean, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So the story goes that January 1st of 2022, I did not know that I was going to be running for office this year, <laughs> but it was excited when the opportunity came. Um, but also had mixed feelings based on like, what does this mean? What is like, what's the situation we're encountering? So lots of mixed emotions. So yes, the 38 was redrawn and I was actually added to it. So I live on the West side of Iroquois park and, um, I used to be in Nemo Kilkarni's district. So I had no intentions to be running this year, um, prior to redistricting. Then of course with Mackenzie Cantrell getting, drawn out of her uh, House District 38. And then um, I did get a call 
to say um, that that had happened and that, um, you know, I was in the 38 and what I consider running. And so at that point, I'm like, I've looked at the maps. I can't, I couldn't tell that I was in the 38th. <laughs> so I was like, I guess I'll take your word for it. Um, you know, send me a map and I'll take a look. Um, and so at that point, you know, I kind of did the, you know, let me get my bearings. What does this mean? So I was happy to say yes when the opportunity came and I was definitely prepared um, to say yes. Um, but it was surprising. And there was obviously a lot of sad feelings about losing such a great representative in uh, Mackenzie Cantrell, who's someone who I've really looked up to, who did a lot of work to earn that seat um, and capture the votes of the 38th district. She's been a big supporter of our union workers, first responders. And those are all things that um, I admire, that the community admires. And so I have big shoes to fill. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with that. I think you do have big shoes to fill. Mackenzie Cantrell is a big friend of mine, big friend of the show. Um, but I think that you're you're definitely adept at doing that from what we've been able to see. So we're, you know, looking forward to seeing how you might be similar, but also some ways that you might differentiate yourself from Representative Cantrell. You know, one of the ways is, you know, Mackenzie Cantrell is a pretty young person. She's younger than me, actually, but you're substantially younger than me. Uh, you, I'm younger if, than everybody. <laughs> yeah, if, if elected, you would be one of the youngest people ever elected to the Kentucky legislature. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested in that. Tell us, have you experienced people telling you that you're too young to run for office, even though that's in the Constitution that you're not? Um, do you feel as though, you know, your age might bring a fresh perspective? And if so, like, in what ways? So I think I alluded to this early um, in the first question, but I was ready to run for this seat when I got that call. Um, obviously, was not at you know planning for it, but with that, um, since I was 15 years old, I've had an interest in government. It actually started with um, I had a family member who was um, killed as a victim of domestic violence, and um, you know we, me and my sister, through that grieving process, really started to um, participate more in government. And we met Joni Jenkins. We got to attend Say um, Say My Name in October, which obviously this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, and with all of that, it really got me into thinking, you know, I, I don't have a good understanding uh, as a 15 year old, uh, how, how do laws get passed and what topics are coming up in the Kentucky General Assembly. So my love for government actually did start with the state legislature. And um, Joni Jenkins was actually one of the first people that I was able to meet. And from there, I started to become really passionate about getting more women elected to office. So what that looked like for me was I was a member of Louisville Girls Leadership, a local nonprofit, and founder Marsha Weinstein actually asked a group of young women um, who were in the Women in Politics focus group, uh, you know, how many of you have ever thought about running for office? And like one person raised their hand. It was not me. And um, so it just really planted the seed of like young people and young women and non-binary individuals, anyone who's not represented in government, people of color, need to really consider um, running for office as something that you can do one day, whether that be really soon or in the very distant future or support a candidate. And so I started to work for, um, actually was able to intern with Representative Attica Scott when I got into college and eventually uh, had met Nicole George through the League of Women Voters, worked on her campaign as a volunteer coordinator, and then from there um, applied to be a legislative aide and luckily got that position, which is how I'm here today. <laughs> um, so it's been 10 years of, you know, always being the youngest person in the room 
and encouraging uh, you know more people now to that I'm not the youngest person in the room and really bringing them with me. Um, but it's always been one of those things of we need more young people. We know that I'm proud to be a young person in the room. And the thing that I uh, would say has been a good balance, especially in my time in local government, is to really be able to listen to people who have gone before us and done the work and the challenges that they've encountered. But then also, you know, having the voices of young people to learn new and fresh ideas that we things we haven't tried tried before and to really be able to marry those two is the magic sauce that um, I don't think we have enough of. So that's really my role. And that's what I say to people when they say, oh, boy, you're young. I'm like, well, we need young people. So it's a good thing I'm here. Yeah, I remember when they used to tell me that I was young. And the thing about it is it, it, it doesn't last forever. So there you go. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, I, I agree with that totally. Like the perspective, I mean, a lot of public policy is centered around, um, you know, uh, young people or people going to college and, uh, you know, especially people uh, in the legislature, a lot of them went to college, a lot of them went to college a long time ago. And even for me, my experience and tuition and what it all cost is just so much different than even you, which was, you know, you're not, you're not super, you're not that much younger than me, but like I, you know, your, our, our perspectives and our experiences were almost like completely different. And we need people who have had, you know, more recent experience uh, experiencing that. So it's a perspective that I've always really felt passionate about in terms of like specific policies the funding of our um, public colleges, Pell Grants, all these different funding sources that um, young people have to navigate for themselves. And we do have a kind of a generational divide as to what that feels like. Um, I couldn't afford college. That's why I ended up in the Metropolitan College program. I knew I wanted to be a political science major, but I didn't want to have debt because I didn't know what I would be doing. And so um, but I knew I wanted to be a young person in government to kind of you know, bring that fresh perspective. And I always knew, you know, you're young until you're old, essentially. <laughs> One day that switch just goes off. I don't know who decides it. But it's always so important to have younger and younger voices participating in government. And I think it's actually a shame that the youngest you can be is 24 because you're missing that whole college, um, traditional college demographic. Um, so I always, um, actually, I believe I will be the youngest person ever elected to the General Assembly at age 25. Um, and it is fitting because Mackenzie Cantrell obviously was the youngest when she was elected. So mm-hmm. we're going to get the title back. Um, <laughs> but those issues like um, how are you going to pay for tuition are some of the most, um, you know, pressing, pressing things that we need young people to be vocal about the struggles. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, uh, that that's that's absolutely true. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your district. So South Louisville is, has really, for a very, very long time, been a Democratic stronghold. Some of the most reliable Democratic voters reside in South Louisville. However, you know, Republicans have certainly been targeting South Louisville recently, especially this year in terms of where they're putting their money. Um, there, there seems to be that, you know, this like this idea that the current Democratic Party is kind of out of touch with the values of the South end. And I've certainly heard Republicans say that quite a bit. Um, and, and I mean, I'm interested as somebody who's running as a Democrat in the South End, is there, in your experience, part of the Democratic message that you think might be, you know, a little bit out of touch with with the voters down there? And and also, conversely, what parts of the Democratic message do you think resonate the best with the folks who live in your district? Sure. So I think I'll start with what resonates the best. So, like you said, longtime Democratic stronghold. Um the thing that people really value in the South End is hardworking folks, um, employment, and um, you know, 
a self-reliant spirit. So um, we're also very generous. So we have a very big heart to give. So we're very giving to local causes and um, churches and nonprofits. Um, but as far and obviously a big supporter of union labor. So those are all things that really resonate to that working spirit. Um, however, I'll say where I think the disconnect comes in and why um, what Republicans have actually been able to capitalize on that um, the Democratic Party and me as a candidate have to do better in speaking to is obviously there's a lot of division in the country right now. Um, so really humanizing each other, listening to what people's concerns are, even if I adamantly disagree. You know, I sit there and I listen because I want to convey, like, we might have a differing opinion. I'm going to let you know that. But if you have like a pothole next door um, or across the road, I want to help you with that. Like, I want to get back to where, like, I'm here at your door. Tell me what your needs are. Um, and just really letting people see a face of someone doing the work. Um, so I think there's that. But I think in terms of messaging and what those concerns about issues really are, there's um, very much concerns around safety. Um, the feelings of these are folks who, if they call LMPD, they want to see a response. And so with the understaffing that we see within LMPD, um, obviously, like checking door handles isn't always the priority run. And while they're going to try to get to it, it's not always the first thing that they're able to respond to. So with that, that leaves people with a taste of, you know, am I safe in my community? You hear the news and you worry about your children. And those are things that we haven't done the best job of really um, being boots on the ground and explaining to people like what that work needs to look like in their community. Um, so I say like investment and disconnect are two things that uh, have really set in. There's often like a South End idea that we've been disinvested in and that we haven't gotten the dollars that we deserve. But there's also a piece to that to say, there are people out there advocating and we need more of them to advocate. We need people to be vocal uh, and being a part of groups that are making those decision at, decisions as to where funding's going and looking at budgets and saying, okay, why isn't um, you know this need that we've identified going here? I think we just assume that people know all of our needs and we don't. <laughs> and if we do know the needs, sometimes we need those extra voices to nudge with us. So our elected officials, um, it's kind of like a catch-22 sometimes because we often do know the, the needs, but we can't be the only person advocating for them. And so um, to really get the community to understand that is a big piece. And then I'll, lastly, I'll say the disconnect. Like I was knocking um, the southernmost tip of my district um, last weekend, and I really felt that disconnect. You know, people who haven't seen government working for them, they haven't seen an elected, um, hasn't been to their door because it's not as densely, um, you know, it's not as dense knocking. It's a little bit harder door knocking. But with that, you and they don't know their neighbors. There's new neighbors. All of those things can really lead to a sense that your community has changed and um, a feeling of hopelessness or disconnect. But I'm here to say <laughs> that the South End is a great place to live, work, and play. We have a lot of new development um, and folks want to see more restaurants. They want to see more things like Colonial Gardens. Uh, they want to see more restaurants like Shack in the Back, you know, just and it, businesses that are expanding. So it's really important that we take care of the folks that are here right now, um, but also encourage new people that the South End is a great place to be and encourage more advocacy and block by block um, 
connection. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really beautiful sentiment when you're talking about the South End. And I mean, my, my experience as somebody who's lived in this city my whole life is that, you know, the South End is a really tight knit and, and, and a close community of people who care about th- care about their communities care about their small the small places where they live um and also care about the whole city i mean there there are people who are out there talking about it and you know raising hell when it needs to be raised for sure um and and, you know you you spoke a little bit about advocacy in terms of like bringing government to the people and being an advocate uh you know being the being the face of the state or being the face of the government to the people um in in your in your district i am kind of interested in the other side of that though um you know Obviously, your ability to legislate is a little bit restricted as a Democrat running in for the state legislature. But I'm interested in hearing, are there any pieces of, you know, specific legislation or or specific ideas for actually work inside of the legislature that you'd like to bring that that you do think would make a difference for the people in in South Louisville? Absolutely. So I do think that number one is the infrastructure needs. And so working on, um, you know, what are some of the most dangerous roads in Louisville? We know Taylor Newcut is one of the top ones. And that is the main thoroughfare of District 38. And so um, there are things that we can do legislative-wise, budget-wise, but then also working collaboratively with our local partners and our state partners and state agencies to really get some of this work done. Uh, Metro Council and Metro Government passed a corridor study back in, I think it was 2013 for Taylor Newcut. And a lot of that work has been sitting on the shelf, um, but because of more energy from council people and also um, Southwest Dream Team kind of project adminning some of that, we're finally starting to see movement on um, the land use pieces, the mobility pieces, the corridor branding pieces. Um, and I believe Garage Pig um, is a local business that's going to help with some of that branding. They're the folks who have done the South End Proud stickers um, that you, and T-shirts that you'll see people wearing. And that actually was something that came from their business. And hopefully they're going to help us uh, continue with work with Southwest Dream Team and the corridor to get some unique branding along the way, because there are so many different neighborhoods in that stretch. But as legislative wise, yeah, it's no secret that uh, the Democrats are the minority caucus and um, in Frankfurt. And so for me, it's really important to, again, humanize other legislators, get to know them, find the issues that we care about and form coalitions. But, you know, and, in areas where we can agree to disagree, do that, but also do harm reduction and really be able to say like, this wording is problematic and here's why, Um, and try to get to a place of um, partnership. So for me, my approach is really going to be to kind of listen and learn for session and um, be able to hopefully bring voice in a way that maybe other legislators think that I'll fill a gap. Um, And I think my biggest um, one of my biggest strengths is obviously the experiences that I've had in local government and being able to communicate some of those um, local needs up to the state level and, you know, be able to bridge that they're not in conflict. Uh, A lot of times what we hear about is things like, uh, you know, the state wants to widen roads and local government wants to right size them. And so those things seem in conflict. um, But ultimately, I think like we can come to a place of where safety is a priority Placemaking is important, but it just takes a little bit more collaboration as to what do both uh, entities need. So for me, uh, those are the things that I'm really going to strive to do. Uh, another thing is healthcare is really important to South End folks, to people all over Kentucky, let's be honest. And mental health, things like gun violence, things like, um, you know, 
gender language and legislation. All of these things are things that hopefully I will be able to have an impact on. Um, but I'm a learner, so I'm going to you know, get in the ring and try my best to fit in where I can. But, you know, a lot of that is going to be, uh, you know, doing some listening and plugging in where it's appropriate. No, yeah. I mean, I think based on all the conversations that I've had with a lot of first time candidates for like years and years, you seem like already ahead of the curve in terms of what is possible. And then also places where you can really make an impact. I really also I totally agree with you that infrastructure legislation and working with the executive branch on um, on how, you know, uh, infrastructure projects get implemented are a real major way for state legislators to make an impact in their district. So, yeah, that was very smart. Good job. <laughs> well, it's something that I've had a lot of experience in over the past um, couple of years. And we um, the council office I work with, you know, we did a big exploration around state road funding because nobody gives you a playbook for how this works. And that's the same at the state level. And so we were really able to bring, um, you know, legislators together, groups of public works and KYTC together to make some of those things happen. At the minimum, the community should know what we're advocating for and what the priorities that we're fighting for are. If I, you know, that's my job. And hopefully at the end of the day, I want to see results. But if I need to work on it for several years, we need to work on it for several years. Or if it's not going to happen for whatever reason, then it's up to me to communicate that and be honest with the population and yeah. not guarantee things that I can't deliver on. Absolutely. Yeah. And all those conversations, are they get kind of dicey sometimes. You already talked about widening roads versus road diets. And like that is... Good luck. I'm glad I don't have to run those conversations. So, uh, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit, though. You mentioned, like, coming together and uh, a little bit about, like, bipartisanship and, fi and fi finding, um, you know, commonalities. But, I mean, uh, it, right now is a very partisan moment. We're right about a month before the election. And, you know, um, there is a partisan election going on with you right now. And, you know, you have significantly outraised your opponent in terms of the amount of money that you've been able to raise. But the majority of your opponent's contributions come from Republican candidates for office, including a $2,000 contribution from Joe Kraft, uh, whose wife is running for governor of Kentucky. So, I mean, what does it feel like? Uh, you know, you, you talked about wanting to work with Republicans, but I mean, it can't feel super great to be so closely targeted, but maybe it's also, you know, you know, flattering. I don't know. How do you feel about all this? Well, I'll say that I try to stay really focused on me. And that's why I'm so grateful for the amount that we've been able to raise and that's in part because, you know, we whatever amount people are able to give or whether they're volunteering their time, you know, I just appreciate all the support that I've gotten from the community, um, from people who have heard from me and, uh, you know, met me and was like, no, I really like what you're about or people who have, uh, you know, encouraged me to be in this place for for many years. And so all of those things, every contribution is so unique and it doesn't matter if it's ten dollars. It doesn't matter if it's thousands. Um, it is so meaningful. And I will say, uh, I'm proud to have almost every endorsement in this race. And that helps a lot too, but it does take a lot of work. And, um, you know, going back to being careful about not saying things that I can't deliver on, that's really important to me. So every endorsement that I've gotten, I was, it was born out of being able to listen, build partnerships. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful for all that we've been able to do. And I will say, I think like some of the tendency that, uh, you know, your own party will collectively give. I think that's just part of, you know, supporting each other. Running for office is very difficult. And um, it's always good when people, uh, you know, see that and they want to support you. Um, some things, like I said, it's partisan. So sometimes we do disagree and you want to support the candidate that you think that um, will support your efforts. And so 
I think that's just human nature in some capacity, but I've been really proud of, you know, staying focused on what I'm trying to accomplish and um, the amount that we've been able to raise and the support that we've gotten from the community. I'm just really grateful. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's a really close connection that you have with your community and, and that bears out in lots of different ways, but your fundraising numbers certainly are one of those as well. All right. So you you have a website that has an issues page, which puts you ahead of a lot of folks that are running for office these days. And on that website, you list labor unions, healthcare, and women and LGBTQ rights as things that are really important to you. So I, I two questions about that. First of all, among that group of things, are there any p- specific pieces of legislation that have been making their way through the legislature in previous sessions that you hope to jump onto, be a part of? Are there any new ideas that you're bringing around those issues? And are there other issues that you're especially passionate about? Sure. So I will say, let's start with um, Amendment 2 that's on the ballot (laughs) uh, coming November the 8th. So Amendment 2, and it's very restrictive language um, around what abortion is, I think is fundamentally in disagreement of any, you know, woman who has been in a situation or anyone who has reproductive organs that could carry a child. I think anyone who's been in that situation or, you know, known a grandma who had complications after multiple births. I mean, I think there's so many different scenarios that run the gamut. Um, That's really not for legislators to have to know everything that could happen, but to know that that's a very personal choice and very hard decisions to be make to be made um, with your family. And then of course, with the doctor and I don't want to get in situations where you've got a legal team and medical fields trying to decide if they can act or not. Um, it's a very blurry place to be. And as a woman of childbearing age, um, you know, with a husband, I think with the husband or, you know, just with somebody who I'm serious with, I think it's very scary to think about what could happen. Um, and yeah, just it's a very scary time. So I, of course, you know, encourage people to really think critically about how restrictive that language is and, um, you know, to take that into consideration, talk to other people who have been in those scenarios. Um, it's also, also, you know, very traumatic to have to relive those encounters sometimes. And so just be really kind and cautious. Um, but it's important that we have those discussions because it's how we get problematic um, blanket constitutional amendments that um, could greatly restrict our access. And so that's number one, vote no one amendment two. Um, And of course, I'll continue to be a strong champion for anything reproductive choice wise that's coming across my desk. Um, I think obviously LGBTQ children um, get a lot of attention in the Kentucky legislature. That's very concerning to me. Um, You know, the fact that we're not really thinking critically about the harm that we're doing at the legislative level and um, about, you know, how much is this really impacting folks? Why, why is this the source of where we want to put our energies? Um, you know, could there be more productive legislation that we're working on? Um, segue into healthcare now. Um, you know, we have so many folks that are impacted by um, when I get told nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> community-based waivers for our disabled and aging community. These are things like Michelle P waivers, traumatic brain injury waivers, acquired brain injury waivers, um, you know, it runs the gamut. Now we actually have a new mental health waiver. Um, hopefully that'll be implemented soon. So going back to like working with um, the administration for how these things are implemented, we know we have a lot of um, mental health workers that we need to fund and support at an adequate professional level um, and encourage them and encourage more people to go into those fields because we're so understaffed with how much mental health 
um, and opioid use, those are, you know, separate but related needs that we have, we're, um, we're going to need a serious amount of workers to tackle these issues and social workers and all the things. So for me, really working on how we're um, taking that legislation that's on the books, things like Tim's Law, and really implementing them um, down into our local communities where it would be helpful. Those are the things I'm hoping to kind of get in the weeds on uh, and help through that process. It's one thing to start legislation. It's another thing to have to track it through how it becomes um, implementable in our daily lives. And so I definitely see me doing a lot of education for the community as to the things that are coming through that I think are really positive on the community. I could talk about this all day, so I'll let you ask another question. No, no, that's great. I mean, being able to talk, uh, you know, specifically about waivers that are important in the community and those being implemented, um, how they're implemented at the ground level, like that's the type of stuff that we need our state legislators to be able to talk about right off the bat. And I feel like, you know, we mentioned Representative Cantrell, you know, well versed in a lot of this sort of stuff. And it seems like he'd be able to just pick up the baton right from her and start running with it with that, which that's great. That's awesome. So I mean, that's, that's basically what we wanted to talk about. So, I mean, before we let you go, though, I do want to know, you know, there is about a month before the election. We do have a lot of listeners in Louisville all in all parts of town. If people want to help you out, if they live in your district or if they're just in town somewhere, how can they do that? Absolutely. So, number one, I have a website and it does have a lot of great information on it. And that is rachelrorks.com. RachelRourkes.com. You can find me on Facebook at Rachel Rourkes, District 38. I post there weekly. And also, um, I will say that uh, my email is contact at RachelRourkes.com. So if you want to continue the conversation, please reach out. I'm happy to do so. And um, if you live in the... um, Live in the 38th. Obviously, I ask for your vote on November the 8th. If you need to know where your polling location, you need a ride. We got you. Um, and I just really appreciate the honor of being able to run. And I hope I can have your support. Um, and then lastly, I'll say we're also door knocking. So if you got those uh, walking shoes and you're wanting to do something in the month of October, um, join us. Like I said, you can reach out to me in any of those ways. Um, that I mentioned before, and we would love to have you. And of course, we can talk more policy um, while we're doing that door knocking. All right. Well, Rachel Works, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for us today. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at MyOldKYPod. You can subscribe to our podcast at the podcast app of your choice. We do an occasional newsletter. You can find it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.